The reason why we engage in missions is because uh, worship does not exist amongst all people. We are told that although some worshipped, others doubted. And the context in which Jesus then gives them the, the, the Great Commission is in that context of worship and doubt. And then he says, go and make, all disip uh, go, make disciples of all nations. Uh, he spoke with all authority in heaven and on earth. He said that such authority had been given uh, to him, obviously, by God, the Father and the Spirit, and given this authority to the Son. And then he says, go, therefore. And as you go, make disciples of all nations. And how do you do that? You, you bring the gospel to them. You tell them of Jesus Christ and the great salvation that there is in his name. You tell people who are in darkness that there is the light, Jesus Christ. You tell them who are dead in their trespasses that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. You tell those who are steeped in sin that the Savior, Jesus Christ, came into the world to save sinners, even the foremost. You tell them, and uh, the Spirit will cause them to believe. And the Bible says that those who believe are to be baptized. So there, there will be those who believe. There will be those who will bow their knee to the Lord and uh, see that He is the only way, the only life, and uh, the only truth that no one can get to the Father except through Him. So you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Father who loved such in the eternity past before the foundation of the world and chose them in Christ to be holy and blameless before him. The Father who loved the world and sent his Son, Jesus Christ, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The Father has the same name and the same essence, the same glory, the same power with the Son. So baptize them not only in the name of the Father, but also of the Son. Of the Son who left the glories of heaven and came on earth and uh, was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption of sons. The Son who obeyed God's law perfectly. The righteous son, the one that the Bible says is the sinless one, the perfect one. And now this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. And he's the one who died on the cross to, to bear the penalty due to us for our sins. He died the sinner's death. And uh, those who believe in him then obtain his righteousness and have their sins forgiven because Christ, the just, and paying the penalty. 
baptize them not only in the one name of the Father and of the Son, but also of the Spirit, because he applies the love of the Father and the grace of the Son and brings fellowship where there was hostility. The Son, um, the, the, the son promised the Spirit, and so the Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son, and he comes and indwells individual people. And he helps them to see the glories of Christ. He opens up their ears to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. The Spirit comes and removes the heart of stone and gives the heart of flesh that trembles at the Word of God. The Spirit comes and applies the work of salvation, the work of redemption, by giving faith, so he gives that as a gift to a sinner and enables the sinner to repent of their sins to Christ. This is the work of the Spirit. And as they are baptizing today, we are going to witness two baptisms. Uh, you would say that they would be baptized in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of, of the Holy Spirit. And then after that, they are subjected to a lifetime of teaching, a lifetime of doctrine, a lifetime of instruction, a lifetime of uh, being taught God's word. And they are encouraged to be obedient to the faith, uh, to observe all that I, the Lord has commanded you. And then the promise is there that I am with you always to the end of the age, meaning that this promise goes beyond the apostles, it goes beyond the first century, it is upon us too to obey. Because the Lord promises I am with you always. So, so, so there is no reason for fear. There is no reason for uh, doubt. There is no reason for despondency. We, we are to give ourselves to doing this. So I want to ask you then, uh, and please do make microphones ready, what are the biblical reasons for obeying the Great Commission? I know I've mentioned some of them, but I still want to hear from you. What are the biblical reasons for taking the gospel to every creature? Yes? Do we have uh, any biblical reasons for taking the gospel to every human being on earth? To obey that commandment, yes, um, the Lord has given a command, the Great Commission. It's there in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's in Mark 16, verse, uh, verse 15. We have to obey our Savior. He is our Master. Uh, after he purchased us and freed us from sin, how can we not be those who obey him? He purchased us freely at the cost of his own life for good works. These good works that do include sharing the faith. So until he comes, we should do the same. Let others know of the wonders of his love. Before he comes, we need to be those who evangelize. We are to be his witnesses beginning from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what we 
learned last week from Acts 1.8. Uh, we've been commissioned to be the witnesses of Christ as one who are, uh, those who are led by the Holy Spirit. So we can't do less. We mustn't do less. The Spirit will not allow it. And it's one of the reasons why Christ calls us to himself. The reason why after uh, you are converted, you don't die, is so that you may be a witness of Christ. Another reason, please, we need to have microphones ready. Yeah, somebody is saying here that this is the only way that a sinner or sinners can be brought to the knowledge, uh, or can be brought to salvation. Whoever calls on him will be saved. Romans 10, uh, 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call upon him whom they've not heard? But then how can they hear unless someone is sent to preach to them? So yes, this is the only way for sinners to be saved. Uh-huh. Another reason? Sorry? Two? To reveal God to sinners. Yes, if the world is going to know the will of God, then we surely have to uh, make him known. Uh, and, and the will of the Lord is, which one? What's the will of God? That is, kingdom may come. That uh, uh, the rule of Christ will be established among all peoples. Uh, so that, so that, yes. Biblical, one of the biblical reasons for taking the gospel to every human, oh, every Please, human on uh, earth. You took, your, your lips are too close to the microphone so we can barely hear what you said. Uh, taking the gospel to, the, to every human on earth is the God's purpose for salvation. Right. I think that has been said. Thank you. Uh, yes. Uh, Mr. Dominic at the back. Uh, what comes to my mind is uh, the fact that God is creator. And as the creator, he owns everyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, he desires that everyone hears the gospel. And therefore, uh, because he owns them in, in creation, we, and, and uh, uh, he commands that his creation hears the gospel, then we must obey it. Uh, I thought that you were going to go beyond that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you began very well, but I don't think you concluded, uh, you went to the right conclusion. Because he is a creator, therefore he owns us, and so we all owe what to him? Obedience. Uh, put it in, an, in another way. Yes? Worship. We all we owe God worship. He created us so that we may glorify Him. That's the chief end of man. 
The purpose for which God created you is so that you may worship Him. The Bible says that God is spirit and uh, He is looking for those who will worship Him in truth and in spirit. John 2, 20, uh, John, John uh, 4.24 And we know that man in his sins cannot really worship God. Man being dead in his trespasses cannot glorify God who is infinitely holy. Um, in our sins we cannot worship God because he is a consuming fire, the Bible says. Hebrews 12.29 so the Lord plans to gather a multitude of people that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages so that there will be millions of millions and thousands of thousands before the throne of God. We shall bow before him in worship, in holy adoration. And with the celestial beings, with the cherubim and the seraphs, we shall all cast our crowns before him, we shall all worship him, we shall all bow our knees before him. And the Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ has been exalted, he has been given a name, and he has been uh, exalted above everything else and everyone else. And the Bible says that at his name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue. When we consider that there are those who could die without the gospel and perish in hell because of their sins, then we would do everything possible to, as it was, snatch them from the flames of hell. We go to them, pleading with them to be reconciled to God. It would be dreadful to have the solution or the medication but not share it with others who are needing. Is there any other reason? Yes, James? Could wait for the microphone. Free off of the gospel to all human beings, mm -hmm. in a sense, it demonstrates the love of God to all people. Mm -hmm. Because God could have chosen to restrict the gospel to some communities only. Right. But now the light of the gospel has spread to the all nations. It's a love of God to offer it uh, to those people. That's right. That's what Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts 20-24. And uh, he tells the Corinthians the same in 2 Corinthians 5-14. The love of Christ controls us, constrains us. And so we should be willing to uh, fin finish the course of our work here by 
preaching the good news of the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ. We are, we are the ambassadors of the, of the Lord, of Christ, here on earth. Another reason? Yes, Arnold? Um, I'm also thinking of um, the eschatological basis, as mm -hmm. put in Matthew. Yes. Where as we hasten, as we wait for the coming of the Lord, we are told to um, spread the gospel to every human on earth as a testimony to all nations. If you read for us uh, Matthew 24, 14. Um, Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Right. And uh, 2 Peter 3.12 uh, seems to put it in terms of hastening the coming uh, of Christ. Christ's second coming, uh, the, the, the testimony to the entire world about the coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, so, so clearly, we have biblical basis for being missionaries where the Lord has placed us. We may not necessarily go out to be missionaries among the Rendili people or the Somalis, but we are missionaries beginning with where we are. Uh, and uh, uh, at church, then, we, we, we commission qualified, trained men to go to such communities. We pray for them. We financially support them. We visit them and encourage them. Right? So let's then consider the rise of the modern missionary movement. And uh, what you will see is that before 1800, there was very little or minimal missionary activity. Uh, and we may ask questions, why? Why is it that uh, there wasn't much missionary work? So that Africa, that we saw last week, was such a shining continent with the light of the gospel, the Islam came and swept it out uh, in most of the northern Africa, and we saw that there was only one exception, Ethiopia. And now we are asking ourselves then, what happened? Why is it that uh, there was such minimal missionary activity? And the first reason is that the, the doctrinal um, errors that came in and the rise of the Roman Catholic Church while the Eastern Orthodox was almost wiped out by the Islamic influence, uh, became very, the, the Roman Catholic became stronger and stronger, and uh, the light of the gospel continued to be dimmer and dimmer. So the dominance of the Roman Catholicism and the Dark Ages is particularly the big reason that contributed to uh, to minimal missionary activity. There's a whole millennium of darkness. For a long time, the Roman Catholics and the papacy chained the truth from 
going out. The Great Commission was ignored. And so thick darkness engulfed the world for a long time until the Reformation of the 16th century. <clears throat> we know that even after the Reformation, <clears throat> the Roman Catholics do not, do not take that lightly. They do not lie low. But there was counter-reformation. During the 1500s and the 1600s, missions from Europe were carried on almost ex exclusively by Roman Catholics who propagated their false doctrines and practices. The mission efforts were supported by the major Roman Catholic maritime powers like Spain, Portugal, and later France, who vehemently countered reformation attempts by the Protestants for about 100 years. <clears throat> then we also know of the Crusades. There were many constant conflicts instigated by the Roman Catholics. And uh, they, they commissioned, the Pope commissioned the uh, armies from Europe, from Western Europe, from 1095. That's when we, uh, there was the first crusade commissioned by Pope Urban II. And he said, go and fight the Muslims and uh, get the Holy Land out of their control. Now, the first crusade <coughs> achieved its goal with the capturing of Jerusalem in, in 1099. And uh, sadly, the invading Christians set up several Although they set up several uh, Christian, Latin Christian states, the Muslims in that area were not interested in Christianity. They vowed to wage jihad, to regain control over the region. And you know that that, that warfare continues to date. This last week, <clears throat> the, there were a missile from Gaza to Tel Aviv, uh, trying to still recapture uh, that whole region. So uh, the animosity between Christians and Muslims uh, was especially encouraged by the Crusades, which led to a slow growth of Christianity in such Islamic territories. These activities and practices by the Roman Catholics needed reformation. And we thank God that the gospel continued to gain ground uh, from, the, uh, from 1517 when uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis. That continued. And thankfully, by the time we get to the 1800s, uh, there was awakening in different places, both in Europe and in, in the U.S., and as a result, various missionary activity uh, came about. But, the, but there were other problems <clears throat> relating to doctrine. There was lack of theological justification for the Great Commission. If that question that I began with were asked in a typical church in the... Uh, 16th century, they would have said, but the Great Commission was to be carried out by the 12th, by the, by the disciples. And uh, 
because the Great Commission was given to the 11, that work was done by them. And so we find out that the Calvinistic and Lutheran orthodoxy held that the Great Commission had been fulfilled by the apostles. And that the ends of the earth had been reached with the gospel. That needed reformation too. Their missiology was flawed. And then you come to particular or Calvinistic churches. And you find out that there was a doctrine called hyper-Calvinism, which held an, 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 an imbalanced view of the sovereignty of God uh, by neglecting the human responsibility. And this greatly hindered the, the spread of the gospel due to reluctance and slothfulness of the church to missions. So all that uh, were some of the reasons which hindered uh, missionary activity. And the second reason <clears throat> is uh, inaccessibility or lack of exploration. We see that there was little or no missionary activities during this period because of lack of or less advanced navigation equipment and little or no exploration and expeditions had been done on the planet by 1800s. Major explorations by the Portuguese, such as Vasco da Gama, who sailed to India through Africa, were major breakthroughs in opening up the continent to the gospel. Through Vasco da Gama's efforts, many places like the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, Mozambique, Mombasa, India, were opened up. Other men, other sailors, like uh, Captain Cook, for example, their journals were greatly used of God to invigorate missionary work by such men as William Carey. Christopher Columbus, on the other hand, discovered, so to speak, the new world of America in 1492 and is credited with opening America to the Europeans and effectively to the gospel. And then thirdly, and we dealt with this extensively last week, rise of Islam. The Muslim religion spread through the Middle East and other regions around the world through conquest and violence. And the resulting growth of the Muslim states provided the ground in which, really, the gospel was blocked off from such places. greatly impeded the spread of Christianity due to the fear instilled by military conquests upon their subjects. But there were exceptions. As we saw, you may be thinking that it's total and utter darkness. No, it wasn't. There were exceptions. There were people called Moravians. You know, the first European Protestant missionaries to Asia landed in India almost a century before William Carey in 1793. This is Badalomayo Ziegenbaum and uh, Enrich Plato, who were pietists from the University of Hull in Germany. They went to the Danish colony of Trankuba in India in 1706. And more than 50 pietist missionaries from Germany followed them to India during the century. 
We know that pietism was influenced by um, Count Nicholas von Zizodov, who became the leader of the Moravian movement. And in 1732, the Moravian believers began to send missionaries all over the world to 28 different countries in 28 years. They were missionary-minded and reformed and sent about 100 missionaries to various parts of the world. They greatly influenced John Wesley's own conversion. Remember? So that was an exception where there were missionaries being sent out from the Moravians who are firm believers. And then secondly, there was the great migration. While there was darkness, persecution, and rejection of the Protestantism in uh, Europe, and especially in England, many Christians fled and went to the U.S. And so the Puritans, those who are ejected from the Church of England, Immigrating to northern, Northeast America from Britain at around 1620 and settled in northern New York in Massachusetts because of persecution by the government that demanded all people to be under the Church of England. John Winthrop, for example, led a fleet of 11 ships to the U.S. and he brought 800 people with him to New England, while 20,000 followed him over the next 10 years. The Puritans embraced Calvinism, or Reformed theology, with its opposition to ritual and emphasis on preaching. There was a growing Sabbatarianism, preference for Presbyterianism, as opposed to the Episcopal polity, or church government of the Church of England. Then we see that... Uh, there were other influences. For example, Oliver Cromwell's influence. There were spirited efforts by the British under Oliver Cromwell to reach out to the Red Indians in New America colonies in the 17th century. It was during this time that the British Parliament formed the Corporation for the Propagation of the Gospel in the New England. Think about that. Think about the Parliament sitting down to think about the propagation of the gospel. So they formed the Corporation for the Propagation of the Gospel in the New England. In Parliament, they are talking about the propagation of the gospel. This is in, in 1649. So John Eliot, Mayhew family were some of the fruit of, out of this effort. David Brennant and John Sargent also labored to arouse church's interest to reach the Indians. Another influence was that of uh, Jonathan Edwards. You know, Jonathan Edwards was uh, an American preacher whom God used greatly and uh, was especially one of the factors that God used to uh, bring about what has come to be refined as the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards greatly influenced the rise of modern missionary movement, both in America and in Europe, through his preaching and writing. He particularly dealt with hyper-Calvinism of his day, head-on by preaching against it, prayer and writing. When he wrote his book, A Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement 
and visible union of God's people in extraordinary prayer. The Baptists in Europe reprinted it, which made a great impression in bringing down the iron curtain of hyper-Calvinism and moving the feet of the Northampton minister to begin the missionary society at the imploring of William Carey. Jonathan Edwards influenced a great number of people in their view of missionary work, both in America and in, the, in, and in Britain, and sent them for missions among them David Brainerd, who took the gospel to the native Indians. In 1749, Edwards edited and published the, the biography of David Brainerd under the title Life and Death of Reverend David Brainerd. And this publication influenced Carey's mission in, uh, to Begal in India. Edwin's preaching and writings, between 1705 to 1758, motivated and sustained much later Protestant missionary activity among the British ministers. For example, Jonathan Edwards, in 1738, preached a series of 39 sermons under the general title, A History of the Work of Redemption, that was published, published 16 years after his death in 1774. In his preaching, he linked revival with the promised latter-day glory. He argued that through a revived church with a remarkable spirit of piety towards the unreached, the unconverted would become believers owing to the undisputed worldwide rule and reign of Christ. The series had much impact on British ministers, particularly concerning the need to reach out to the heathen with the gospel. In 1748, Edwards published a tract under the title An Humble, Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement and Visible Union of God's People in Extraordinary Prayer. They had those long titles to their works. In this tract, he linked prayer uh, for revival with the dawning of the latter-day glory and argued much for prayer if there would be the outpouring of the Spirit in the latter days. He drew... Uh, out of that, that tract, Reverend John Rylard the pastor of the Baptist Church at College Street, Northampton, received a parcel of books from Reverend John Eskin, a Scottish Presbyterian minister who prepared the first edition of Edwin's History of the Work of Redemption. Ryland, in return, handed it to John Sutcliffe, Sutcliffe, the pastor of the Baptist Church at Olney, Bucks, this is in the UK. After some time, the association resolved to set apart the first Monday of every month to concerns. Concerns there mean agreements. To revive the work of the spirit and spread of Christ's kingdom upon Reverend Sutcliffe's instigation. The association leaders also sent out a universal circular letter which bore Edwin's theology. Ryland recorded that the life of Edwards and the diary of Brennant became like a second Bible to a young man called William Carey. So let's talk about William Carey. William Carey is regarded as the father of the modern missions or missionary efforts. He was influenced by 
a man called Thomas Cott and Andrew Fuller, through whom the Baptist Missionary Society was founded in 1792. And the following year, William Carey set to India and settled in Begal. After a few years, two men, Marshman and Word, joined him. And it is reported that within a century of Carey's death, in 1834, there were about a half a million Protestants in India. So what really influenced William Carey? There was the influence of the Moravian missionaries. There was the influence of Jonathan Edwards. There was the eschatological hope influenced by Jonathan Edwards, David Brennant, and John Eliot. Then there was the break with hyper-Calvinism. Let me talk about that a bit. Carey disassociated from the hyper-Calvinist notion that denied the teaching that all men were to be called to repentance and faith in Christ. They also hindered the missionary efforts to the lost by denying the use of means in the work of salvation. This notion was confronted by Andrew Fuller. This man, Andrew Fuller, was the pastor of Soham Church in Cambridgeshire through his book, The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. Kerry drew conclusions from Fuller's book concerning the duty of every believer to believe in the gospel when it comes, and this greatly influenced his missionary view to the lost. It is this particular book that led him to write his own essay called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. But really the great influence upon William Carey was the Great Commission. He could not understand how you can read Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and not do anything about it. But there were obstacles to William Carey. For example, many older ministers held him in great contempt. Of course, the older ministers were themselves chained by the era of fatalism in, a, in the a form of hyper-Calvinism. So Kerry was swimming against the tide and was derided for holding contrary view, especially being a younger mission, uh, minister. In a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, a newly ordained minister, Kerry, stood up to argue for the value of overseas missions to the heathens, as they call them. But he was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who told him, and I quote, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. Can you imagine what he would have done? Now, Kerry was raised in an obscure rural village of a place called 
Pollapery in Northamptonshire, in the middle of England, where he was only a cobbler, a very poor man. He apprenticed uh, with a cobbler, and not so long afterwards, his master died, and uh, his life became very hard. But he went on to marry Dorothy Plackett, and the Lord blessed them with a daughter. But because of his poverty, it is reported that the daughter died in two following his insufficient pay and difficult living. His family sank into poverty and stayed there even after he took over the business. Uh, and this may have contributed, the poverty may have contributed to the contempt by older ministers. But that was not all. William Carey had little indication. Even though he he was so enthusiastic. He was not that well educated. But it is reported that William Carey borrowed a Greek, Greek grammar and proceeded to teach himself New Testament Greek. Through lots of perseverance, he continued his language studies, adding Hebrew and Latin, and he became a preacher with Calvinistic Baptists. He also continued to pursue his lifelong interest in international affairs, especially the religious life of other cultures. But even with all that, William Carey had this burning desire to go to the heathens with the gospel. And uh, together with his co-laborers, co John Mushman and William Wood, they settled in Serampore under Danish protection following opposition of their work in Calcutta by the British East India Company. But Kerry and his wife lost three small children, and while there, his wife also progressively lost her sanity and could not cope with the strain of living at a subsistence level in India. There was very slow results in India, but the Lord used his labors later on. Of course, there was a cultural barrier, you know, with the Ind Indian caste system and all that. Uh, there was also the opposition from the, the Roman Catholics order of the Jesuits, but still labored on and on, and the Lord greatly blessed his work. Why do I mention William Carey? Because this Englishman, heralded the new missionary era. After he landed there, so many other Protestant organizations established themselves in the country so that 1793, of course there was Baptist Missionary Society that sent him, but uh, a few years later, there was Church Missionary Society by the Anglicans in 1805. Then there was the, the Council for World Mission, that was Presbyterian. There was Australian Baptist Mission in 1882. There was New Zealand Baptist Mission. There was Oxford Mission, Churches of God, Americans, uh, the, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Assemblies of God, Santal Mission, which was a Lutheran mission. 
Bangladesh mission of the Southern Baptist Convention of America, and uh, in 1958, also the Association of Baptists for World Evangelism, an American organization also landed there. So he opened the door for so many other missionaries to enter the Indian subcontinent. But let's come back to Africa. And let's go to South Africa, where we see Christianity in the early days. Religion and politics were interwoven. Because you see, the Portuguese navigator, Badalomayo Dias, through his exploration, erected a limestone pillar and a Christian cross at the Cape of Good Hope in 1488. But religious missionaries did not arrive in any significant numbers for more than a century. So in 1652, the Dutch East India Company established a resupply station at the Cape, based largely on the experience of Jan van Rierbeck, who had survived a shipwreck off the coast of the Cape in 1648, and who later became the governor of the Cape Colony. Then Dutch Reformed Church missionaries reported there in 1658 uh, that uh, Hoikoi slaves in the area attended their mission services. But religious reforms swept across uh, the Netherlands in the 17th, 17th century, and the Calvinistic Synod ruled in 1618 that any slave who was baptized should be freed. In the Cape Colony, however, farmers who depended on their slaves refused to re uh, repeated uh, entreaties from the church authorities in Europe to free these slaves. Instead, the farmers burned religious instruction to the slaves so that none could be baptized. So, so politics, economics, and religious activity were very closely intertwined. But as we look at the contributions of various missionaries, then we'll see how the African continent was opened up. Let's look at the contributions of John George Schmidt. He was born in 30th September 1709 as a son of a peasant family. And he was a Moravian. He was called by the Dutch church to go and preach the gospel to the South African Hottetot uh, people. And he went there amid lots of opposition. He would go with the gospel on the one hand and tobacco on the other. And he would win the hearts of men with the tobacco and the gospel. And it's reported that uh, five converts were baptized before he was kicked out by the Dutch because they were afraid that his activities would uh, destabilize their farming ventures. Robert Moffat is another man who, in 1816, with his five companions, sailed for Cape Town, South Africa, and arrived in, his, in 1817. Again, he found that the Dutch were very hostile to missionary work among the natives, especially when this work was conducted 
under British auspices. But thankfully, under the protection of the Brits, Robert Moffat trekked across this entire territory until he arrived at a place called Namakoland, where the London Missionary Society had begun work. He remained there for 23 years before he returned to, the, to Britain. And uh, through his work, other men such as David Livingstone were motivated. But before we talk about David Livingstone, let's talk about Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray was a prominent Protestant uh, minister, a Dutch Reformed theologian, who lived between 1828 to 1917. He is known for his significant contributions to the missionary work in South Africa, particularly in the areas of spiritual renewal and evangelism. He was deeply committed to the spread of the gospel and the establishment of Christian missions in South Africa. He wrote many books, uh, such as uh, Abiding Christ, Deeper Christian Life. Actually, it's reported that he authored 240 books and articles during his lifetime. Then there is Bishop Mackenzie. Now, it's not the Mackenzie that, that you know. This is Charles Frederick Mackenzie. He was a, a Scottish missionary from a Presbyterian upbringing who was an Anglican bishop. He played a significant role in the missionary work in Africa and lived from 1825 to 1862 and he served as the first bishop of the Anglican Church in Central Africa. Mackenzie was deeply committed to spreading the gospel in Africa, uh, focusing both on people's spiritual needs as well as on their physical needs. He was particularly concerned about the effects of the slave trade on African societies and worked to establish Christian missions as an alternative to that evil trade. It is reported that in 1861, Mackenzie led a group of missionaries on a journey from Zanzibar to Lake Nyasa, that is presently known as Lake Malawi, with the goal of establishing a mission station in the region. But finally, let's come to David Livingstone. David Livingstone was a Scottish Christian missionary explorer and abolitionist who lived from 1813 to 1873. He is known for his extensive travels and exploration of Africa, as well as his efforts to spread the gospel and combat slavery. Livingstone's theology was deeply influenced by his Presbyterian up upbringing. He believed that the primary purpose of missionary work was to make Christ known, bringing people to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He believed that this could only be accomplished by preaching the gospel. And so he was a herald of the cross. He also sought to show the love of Christ by meeting people's needs, such as health care, because he was a medical doctor and uh, by profession. He saw himself as a servant of God, called to bring the gospel to people who had not yet heard it. He believed that this required a willingness to learn about other cultures and adapt to, lo to local customs and traditions, and so he learned many African languages. Here's a summary of his contributions. 
He was a gospel minister. Everywhere David Livingstone went, he preached the gospel. And this must be said because the world has known David Livingstone more as an explorer than as a gospel, as a gospel minister. But really, David Livingstone would not let sickness or the, 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 the depth of the African uh, vegetation or diseases or anything stop him from going to the next village to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. When he would get to a community where he had no way of communicating with them, he would settle there until he learned their language to preach, their to preach the gospel to them in their own language. He is also credited with opening up Africa for the gospel and colonization through his exploration. He translated Christian literature into African languages and wrote many books. He also brought medical civilization to Africa and was heavily involved in the abolition of slave trade in Africa. I'm not going to talk about uh, missionaries in Kenya as yet. We'll do that next week. So we'll talk about Ludwig Kraft and uh, John Rebman and others uh, next week. But let's just look at uh, evangelism in Africa and explore some of the methods of evangelism in the history of the church in Africa. Obviously, as you can see, exploration and uh, colonization was some of the one of the methods where they would travel and open up uh, the area to the knowledge of the Europeans, and through that, more missionaries would come. But sadly, they also came along with company called Colonial Lazim. Then there was the setting up of schools. Uh, and hospitals, and obviously preaching and teaching. Before I conclude, let me allow for any questions, because I know that I've gone quite fast, but you needed to do that to cover these material. Is there any question over all these things? Or comment? Yes, Arnold? There is a question online mm -hmm. from a most spies. Is it acceptable for the church to commission lone women as missionaries? Is it is it acceptable to for the church to commission um, lone, we, lone women? Sorry? Lone women, lone as, women missionaries. as missionaries. Um that's a very difficult question to answer because of the different uh, mission philosophies. But let me say this, that uh, a number of factors need to be considered when any person is being commissioned to be a missionary. 
Number one, they need to be qualified to be elders in their own church. They need to be uh, qualified to be pastors if they are going to be sent out, commissioned by the church to do the work of uh, gospel work. So, if they are not qualified, then how are you going to uh, have them preach or establish churches where they are going? Because the goal of mission work is not just preaching, but also establishing churches. So if you're going to send someone who would not be able to pastor a church, because the Bible does prohibit women from being pastors, then clearly you will have shot yourselves in the foot. But having said that, uh, we also need to realize that desperate times might call for desperate measures. So when, when, when uh, John Eliot was speared, his wife felt the need to continue with the vision of her husband. And so Elizabeth Elliot herself continued there. Uh, there is also a missionary in West Africa, uh, a, a lady missionary, I'm trying to remember her name, who succeeded, or rather who was preserved by God when almost all the missionaries who arrived there would die within a short period, who were men, but she survived, and the Lord used her greatly in West Africa. So, <clears throat> desperate times might call for desperate measures, and so really, I can say that if then there was only a woman who is willing to go to do missions, then that would be an indictment to men by God. Why would men continue to sit in the pew when ladies would go and be in dangerous places uh, without men? Yes, so, so that would be my response to that question. Is there any other question or comment? Right, because our time is up, let, let me conclude by saying that, please, would you pull up that map of the 1040 window? Brethren, it is estimated that of the 8 billion people alive in the world today, more than 3 billion of them live in unreached people groups with little or no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ in any form. They are also without the Bible in their, in their language. This stretch covers most of the northern Africa going all the way to Far East Asia. Three billion people who are without the Bible in their language. According to Joshua Project, approximately 
6,700 ethnic people groups are considered unreached. That is less than 2% Christ followers and less than 5% of Christian adherents. The latest estimates suggest that over 6,700 people groups are considered unreached. This means that over 40% of the world's people groups have no indigenous community of believing Christians able to evangelize the rest of their people group. And so over 42% of the world's population live in these 6,700 people groups. What are we doing about it? How much do we pray about it? How much do we give to it? Who have we sent to minister amongst these 6,700 uh, 6, people groups? Amongst these 3 billion, over 3 billion people groups, or rather people. When you look at this, You have to ask yourself, how am I being obedient to my master's great commission in Matthew 28, 18, and 20? How? You cannot simply sit pretty while you know that there are people somewhere who are not hearing the gospel. No one is proclaiming the gospel to them. Well, you might say that it's very hostile to the gospel and I fear to die. And I tell you, you know, you will die anyway. Why should anyone hear the gospel for the umpteenth time when someone else elsewhere has not heard it even once? Why? If you can't go, then send someone. And if, if you can't send someone, then go. Those are the two alternatives. You either go or you send someone. Or you're actively involved in sending someone. Praying for that person. Praying that the gospel of our Savior would be heard. And Jesus Christ would be known. And people would believe in him and be saved, so that they may serve him as their Lord and Savior. Let's turn to him in prayer. Our Lord, we look to you, trust upon you. We know that Jesus shall reign wherever the sun shines. Lord, your kingdom shall forever stretch from shore to shore until moons shall wane no more. So we pray, Lord, then that amongst us, you would kindle and stir up a desire for making Jesus Christ known throughout the world, beginning with where we are, with our own relatives, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors, 
Help us, Lord God, to see the remarkable things that Christ Jesus has done for us. That we would be willing to tell others of the wonders of your love and of your amazing grace. So we pray, Lord, that we ourselves as a church will reevaluate our own involvement in the propagation of the gospel amongst the 6,700 uh, people groups and over the 3 billion people who have not heard the gospel or who are barely reached with the gospel. Oh, Lord, may we be willing to give more and to pray more as we think about these places, these peoples. So do hear us and bless us this day. For we pray and ask these things in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Next week, we shall be considering uh, the beginning and the growth of a church in Kenya. We are coming home. <laughs>